Amen. You may take a seat. Father, this morning, Jesus, we just want to be here, Father, just to worship you, to honor you, God, to bring your name glory, Father, to grow in all that it is that you want to do for us this morning, do with us this morning. Lord, as we get into the text, God, and as we begin to discuss and, and discern, Father, and, and sift through, through, your, through your spirit, God, we pray, Lord, that your voice would be present in this place. God, may our hearts be open, Jesus, to all that it is that you want to speak. Lord, this morning, as, as was sung in that song at the end, Father, may we not look to the left or to the right, Lord, but straight into your eyes this morning. God, straight into your eyes this morning. And in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, we were visiting my parents' house, and my son, Zephaniah, decided it was a good idea to play outside without his shoes or socks, okay? And I automatically knew it was a bad idea. You know when you're a parent, you just know it's going to be, like, something's going to happen, you just have that gut feeling, and you should probably follow those gut feelings more often, but you don't? Well, I didn't. And so, obviously, it turned out bad. He stepped on some sort of small cactus, and so for the rest of the day, he had tiny, and there was like those annoying little miniature hairy cactuses. You know those ones where if like somebody just like barely brushes your arm or your skin, your body like freaks out and goes into a spasm. It looks like you have epilepsy or something. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does that happen to anybody? Yeah? A few of you guys? If it hasn't happened to you, please go find one of those cactuses and just put your hand all over it. <laughs> it's a must. It's a must do in life, okay? It's one of those things. Well, it was in the bottom of his foot. My sister Joni decided that she wanted to try to get them out. If you know anything about Zephaniah, he has a hard time with people, much less people trying to rip things out of his flesh, okay? It's a difficult thing for him. So he was fighting her with everything, fighting her with everything, everything he had. He was screaming, he was kicking, and he's strong. He's not like this weak little kid. The guy's been doing somersaults off couches since he was like one years old. It was, it was pretty incredible. And the rest of the day, he kind of he limped it off. He, it, we weren't able to get it out. That, at that point in time. And so he just kind of keeps going, goes out throughout his day. He's playing, he's having fun, kind of acts like it doesn't bother him because he knows if he shows that something's bothering him, that somebody's going to come and try to take care of it, right? Well, the day ends, we go to bed, and then we wake up with a screaming Zephaniah in the middle of the night. He comes to our bed, and he's like half asleep, half awake, screaming in pain, and we can't figure out what the heck is going on. And what happens to be is these stupid little cactuses are in his foot, and anytime he moves his foot in the bed, the blanket catches it, and so it wakes him up and freaks him out, right? So he was really upset. So finally, I put him in a chokehold, got him to go to sleep. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. For the record, I did not choke my son, okay? <laughs> no, he fell back asleep. I, I sang him to sleep. I'm serious. So I sang him to sleep. He falls back asleep. And when he's asleep, I get the tweezers and I get my handy dandy little iPhone flashlight. And I'm there at 3.30 in the morning pulling cactus out of my son's foot while he's half asleep. And it really reminded me a lot of what we're about to talk about this morning. There's so often things in our lives, this topic we've been talking about, when God's already brought us out of Egypt, but now it gets down to work where God needs to begin to remove Egypt out of us. And just like my son, we fight it. We fight it. Why? Because it hurts. Of course it hurts. Things are being removed. Things are being torn away. And so in our own lives, we fight and we fight and we fight and we kick and we scream. And at the end of the day, we're still hurting. You know, at the end of the day, we're still hurting. We're still in torment. We're still struggling. We're still going through these things. And we fight it and fight it and fight it, not knowing and this is my belief. I believe that the only reason we resist the Lord is because we don't genuinely believe that he loves us. I think the only reason we would ever resist the Lord is if we do not believe within our hearts that God actually genuinely loves us. For my son, his thought is we're going to hurt him. I mean, he's too young to understand things. So so his thought is, he's, he, we're going to hurt him. It's going to hurt him. It's painful. Why would you be doing this to me? And I think a lot of times in our own lives, when God begins to strip things off, when God begins to circumcise the heart of who we are as human beings, we begin to kick and scream and fight and resist, not truly understanding that the Lord our God loves us. Amen? That's where we're going this morning. So buckle up. As we were in worship, I felt some things that are going to be a little bit heavy for this morning's sermon, so really buckle up. Tell the person next to you, buckle up. And then tell them you're not allowed to leave. 
We're going to pick up in just briefly. I just want to read this one scripture from Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Joshua 5, and you can mark there. That's where we're going to be reading through the text. It'll also be up on the projectors. Um, but we're gonna, I'm just going to read this, these two verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 1. It says this. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Verse 3. In the 40th year. And then the verse goes on. And this morning, I want to begin this whole thing talking about the difference between 11 days and 40 years. 11 days and 40 years. I am a music major in college, so maybe my math isn't all that great. However, I did go to public school education systems, and through that, I know there's a massive difference between 11 days and 40 years. Does anybody understand the difference between 11 days and 40 years? It's drastic. And it says it was an 11-day journey, and then it follows that verse with some comic relief, as Scripture always gives us. It says, and in the 40th year, in the 40th year, when 11 days becomes 40 years, you know something's wrong. When 11 days becomes 40 years, you know something's wrong. And just to start this whole thing out, I want us to begin to connect with the scripture. What are the things that God has called me to? What are the promises God has made to me? And what was my part of that deal? What was my part in it? Am I playing a 40-year game right now in what should have just been 11 days? Have I wasted so much? How much time has been wasted? How much time has been wasted in my own life? Disobedience hurts us and those we love. When we read the text, I preached about this a couple months ago as to what it is that caused the Israelites to get stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. It was their disobedience and their unfaithfulness. They, were, they had doubt. They had so much doubt. And so when God said, I'm going to do this, they said, it's impossible. It's impossible. And so God says, okay, every man 20 years and older, you're dying in the wilderness. You're dying in the wilderness. And this morning, man, as I was just praying and, and we were worshiping, and that was incredible, just the presence of God in this place. And I was asking God, God, show me something. Orlando started speaking about these things that the Lord puts on our hearts, and that's, that's to give back to God. And God said, you know what? I want you to know what my heart was for those people that died in the wilderness. Because we can read that text and say, man, God, what the heck? Why are you so angry? Why are you so wrathful? What's the point in that? And God's heart was never for these people to die in a wilderness. That was never the Lord's heart. He gave them the promised land, and they chose to be disobedient. And we need to begin to understand the consequence of choice. The consequences of choice on our part, because there are consequences. God's heart was broken for those people. He put up with moment after moment after moment after moment with the Israelites in the wilderness. Story after story after story. And at the end of every single one of the stories, he says, okay, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another chance. It's going to be okay. And then finally, he, he recognizes, he realizes these people are not people that want the promise. They're not people that want the promise. And so we began with this thing a couple weeks ago where I talked about belief right? The wilderness being this place that reveals genuine belief. It reveals who we are. It reveals what we actually believe about God. And so we need to begin to analyze our lives and say, okay, is my life demonstrating genuine belief in the Lord? And if not, how long am I willing to waste time in the wilderness? How much time is enough time for me to wake up and say, I'm done playing games with this thing? And we all need to ask that question in our own spirits, in our own hearts, because we're all facing the same thing. The scripture is not just historical, it is narrative, and it is telling us our story as well. And so for the people of Israel wasting 40 years in the wilderness, we need to understand there's areas in our own lives that we may be wasting time. Time is one of the most valuable things that we have in this world, one of the most valuable gifts that God has given us. And he's asked us to be good stewards of the gift he has blessed us with. Time being one of those. How do we use our time? How do we use our time? So that's my first question. That's my first question for us is, has 11 days become 40 years in our individual lives? Galatians 5.1 says this, it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. That sounds a bit redundant to me. For freedom Christ has set us free. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. For freedom Christ has set us free. We need to understand there's a difference between deliverance and freedom. There's a difference between getting out of Egypt and then God getting Egypt out of us. There's a massive difference. And most of it comes down, God's willing to do the work. Who believes God can move like, move like that, powerfully do things in people's lives? I've seen it. I've experienced it. So what's the issue? Human choice. 
Human choice, human willingness, okay? Belief and behavior. We talked about a couple weeks ago, you act according to what you believe. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You act according to what you believe. This is all headed towards um, a study in the book of Ephesians that I want to do with this church. I think it's going to be incredible. But you act according to what you believe. We'll leave that alone for a little bit. Leave that alone for a little bit. So before we get into today's text, I want to talk about maturity. I want to talk about Christian maturity because we're all here this morning for the most part, I would assume, because we want to grow in our relationship with Christ. Maybe we think Sunday is going to do it. Maybe Sunday isn't the only time we spend with the Lord. I can't discern that or judge that on any of your behalf. You have to do that for your own self. The thing is, maturity is what Christ is after in our hearts. Sanctification, growth, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ himself. Now, maturity is based on growth, right? I think we can understand that. We see a, we see a young kid growing up and we'd say, yeah, he's, he's really maturing, yeah? And then we see wisdom in, in people. We see where people's intellect and their wisdom and their knowledge grow. We say, yeah, that person's really maturing. Now, here's the issue about maturity. Maturity is based on obedience. I mean, it's based on growth, but growth, when it comes to spiritual lives, is based entirely on obedience, okay? Christian maturity is based on obedience. Now, here's the thing. You can come into this place like, oh, whatever, dude. I'm not going to follow all those commandments. I'm not going to just obey God. Like, who are you telling me? Don't tell me how to live my life. I had my, um, who was it? Who remembers? I don't know if you guys remember my sister, Vanessa, and uh, her husband, Alex, well, they have a little girl about the age of Zephi, a little younger. The other day, uh, Vanessa was telling Zudia not to do something. And Zudia looks at her, Mom, it's my life. I'll do what I want. Like that. She's like two. <laughs> like, where did that come from? She was, I mean, she's cute. You would have been like, you could do whatever you want. You would have been that way. Obedience is not just something we do because we have to do. Obedience must be born out of trust. It must be birthed out of trust. So here's the issue. Again, talking about belief. If you're having a hard time of being obedient to to God, to his ways, to his commands, to what he says is the best possible way to live, the kingdom of heaven here now, this is the best way to do it, to live. If you have difficulties abiding by those things, begin to ask yourself, do I actually even trust this God? Do I actually even trust this God? And I can answer that question for you, but I want you to answer that question for you. Can I actually, do I actually trust this God? And trust can only be birthed out of a relationship of love. Trust itself must be birthed out of love. So there must be at the foundation of this whole thing, this understanding that catch this, God's only intention towards you is love. The only thing that God desires for you, towards you, after you, before, the only emotion that God has towards you. Emotion's a bad word. The only choice God has towards you is love. And if we can establish that at the foundation of our Christian lives, everything can flow out of that. Because if God loves me, then I can trust him. So when he makes a decision, I can be obedient. And so out of my obedience, I can grow. We need to establish those things in our hearts. Because if we're just trying to work our way into heaven, you're already missing the point. The point's already missed. Jesus never said, hey, do all these things so you can come to my Father. He said, no, abide in love. Abide in love and you will see the Father. I will show you the Father. Abide in love. Everybody say, abide in love. Abide in love. So maturity, and this is my last point before we actually get into this morning's sermon. This is all the opening, so I hope you're ready for the actual sermon, okay? Maturity does not automatically happen with time. We need to know this. Maturity does not automatically happen with time. You, can ha- you could have believed in Jesus Christ for the past 40 years and be as mature as somebody that has known him for 11 days. Did you know that? Why? Because it's all based on how much am I willing to open up my life to what he is doing. So there are some of us, and I do not, again, I hope you guys understand this. I, I know you guys know me for the most part is that I'm not here as a pastor to shame any human being. I'm here to tell you, you're stuck and there's a way out. There's a way out because there is love that exists. There's something in the universe, Jesus Christ himself, Colossians says, that holds it all together and he's pulsating throughout all creation saying there is a better way to live. 
There's a better way to experience life. So I want to tell some of you guys, you've been in the exact same place for the past 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe it's only been six months, but we are called to be a people of growth, not a people of stagnancy or apathy. And we're going to get to that apathetic thing in a little bit. So maturity does not automatically happen with time. Time can aid maturity, but maturity ultimately comes down to do I believe God actually loves me. And if I do, this is what it'll look like. Amen? Now, in Joshua chapter 5, we see this setting. It's a new generation that's, that's been rising up. And so the background and setting of this is that the entire nation of Israel that was 20 years old and older have died in the wilderness at this point. They're all dead. All the men of war are dead. All the men of war are dead. And so God, aside from Joshua and Caleb, God rose up Joshua and Caleb to be leadership in the new generation of Israel. Why? Because the wilderness revealed that Joshua and Caleb actually believed that God was on their side. The wilderness does not just reveal the bad things in us, it reveals the good things in us. It revealed that Joshua had faith. It revealed that Joshua trusted. Ultimately, it revealed Joshua believed God loved the people of Israel. The other 10 spies, they didn't believe so. So when they see everything in the, in, the, in the promised land, they get freaked out. Giants in the land, let's get out of here. I did a message on that a couple months ago. So this whole generation has died. The wilderness revealed Joshua and Caleb. Now in Joshua chapter 5 verse 1, again we'll read this. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Because of the people of Israel. So in Joshua chapter 3, just some background. We could, go, we could do a whole sermon on the crossing of the Jordan River, but we won't for time's sake. God parts the Jordan River for the people of Israel. It's the first thing that happens. It's one of the major things that happens with Joshua. And what's beautiful about that is that I mean, there's so many details, so let's just focus on what's important. The Jordan River was a border of protection for the Canaanites and Amorites. It was one of their gods. We saw this all over the place with Egypt when it came to the Red Sea or the plagues, how God shows his dominance over the, over the earthly gods. Same thing here with the Jordan River. The Jordan River was a symbol of protection to the Amorites and Canaanites. What's important in the text is it says the Jordan was in flood season at that time. It was at the highest it could ever go. What did that mean? It meant the Canaanites and Amorites felt really good about their gods. It meant they felt really protected by their gods because the Israelites, who you've been hearing about for 40 years, that are just hanging out in the wilderness, just these weird, crazy wilderness people, they've been hanging out for 40 years and now they're on your border. And so you're gonna get really excited when it seems like your gods are doing something to prevent the people of Israel from crossing over. And what does God do? He tells the Levites to take the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, right into the middle of the Jordan. We need to understand something about the Jordan River. The Jordan River isn't something you can walk in slowly. If you go there, it's not something, the, the area that the archaeologists believe they crossed, it's not an area you just walk in slowly. It's, if you take a foot in, if you step a foot in that thing, you're going. Like, you're going with that river. And what does the text say in Joshua chapter 3? It says that the Levites put their feet into the water, and the moment their feet touched the water, the waters parted. Faith lesson is this, you need to be willing to step out if you want to see God move on your behalf. You need to be willing to step out if you want to see God moving on your behalf. These Levites had to get their feet wet. I asked the question, I wonder, I mean, there's like four Levites that carry this thing, one on each corner. And so you have to ask the question, um, if they were having the discussion like, hey guys, I was in front yesterday, so I really think I'm going to take the back today. They probably played some sort of like ancient rock, paper, scissors. I don't know what that would have been. It was probably, I don't know, rock, paper, flint knife. I don't know. But so God, God splits the Jordan. And so now the people on the other side, the Amorites, Canaanites, the city of Jericho, they're frightened. Fright. It says they were so scared when they saw what the God of the Israelites did to the Jordan River, that there was no longer any spirit in them. That word spirit is the same word as breath. It means that their breath was literally taken out of them. Their life source was taken out of them because of the move of God. I want you guys to know this morning, before we get into the meat of today's message, is God is on your side. 
God is absolutely on your side. The question is, do you believe it? That's the only question that we're being asked here. Do you genuinely believe God is on your side and that he loves you? So Joshua 5.2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at, um, at Gibeath Haraloth. That's a funny phrase, Gibeath Haraloth. Uh, it literally means hill of foreskins. It's the actual translation of what that means. It says really gross. That's in the Bible. Don't, don't look at me like that, all judgmental. That's in the scriptures. I was actually going to title today's message, Hill of Foreskins, but I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I told you guys, you need to read the Bible more. It's, there's good stuff in there. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. So it's a, it's a strange thing. It says, it says that, that, that God told Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel again. And so then it goes into explanation. Why would you do it again? This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. And what we find out in scripture as we keep reading throughout Joshua is that the generations that lived in the wilderness, they were circumcised. You know what's interesting? They didn't circumcise their sons when they were in the wilderness. They never circumcised their sons when they were in the wilderness. There's a whole generation of Israelites. There's a whole generation of warriors that did not inherit the goodness of God from their fathers and mothers. There was a whole generation that experienced this lack of holiness, this lack of teaching, this lack of obedience. Why? Because they're the generation before them, their parents, their mothers, their fathers, those, those people showed them, we do not trust this God. And so for there to be an entire generation of Israelites that were uncircumcised was at the very least, at the very least, it was just negligence on, beh on behalf of the people of Israel. At the most, it was an absolute rebellion against the way of God. It was them saying, we, we want nothing to do with what you're doing, God. We want nothing to do with it because because of you, we're here, stuck, suffering. So this whole generation has come out and they haven't been circumcised. Circumcision is an interesting thing in scripture. Essentially, just to run it down in a very simplistic way, circumcision was, to, it was saying yes. Ultimately, to be circumcised was to make a personal choice that said yes to God and the ways of God. It was entering into what we call covenant with him. So it was a physical act that demonstrated to the rest of the world who they were. God's. There was a whole generation of 20-year-old men and older that had to make a decision to say, yes, God. And you know what came with it? Pain. Removing of things. Cutting away of things. They had to make a choice. We need to understand, they didn't all have to choose this. They didn't have to choose this, but they chose it. They chose it. So they say yes to God. They become holy ones before God. So my question to you guys this morning, what is holding you back from your calling? What are the things in your life that are holding you back from all that God wants to do? Because I'm telling you, God wants to do things. Not just in this church, across this city, not just in this city, across this nation. We think that our nation is hopeless and lost and broken. It's broken, yes, but God is a God of redemption. So I'm not giving up on the United States of America. Here's the point, though. Here's the issue. It's not going to change from the top down, man. It's not going to change from Washington, D.C., and that's what we're praying for. You know what we need to pray for? Lord, circumcise my heart. What is going on in me? Because if we as the church cannot demonstrate, amen, let's clap. Let's go ahead and clap. You guys want to clap? If we cannot demonstrate to the world that our God is worth saying yes to, then what are we doing? What are we out here offering? What's the point? What's the purpose? If we cannot actually say, look, world, there is a God that loves us. There is a God that loves you. And it's sad that the majority of our approach as Christianity is hatred, anger, bigotry. When, when, when did Jesus say it, tell us to do those things? John 3.16, I think one of the most important parts of that phrase that we miss, we get the love part, but we insert, for God so loved me. It says, for God so loved the world. Not the church. The church is involved in that, but you need to understand, God loves the world. 
He loves the broken. He loves the lost. Those are his children. And Christian theology has set up all kinds of brackets and barriers as to who can and who can't, and this is why you can't, and this is why you can, and election this, and all those things. And we decide, we've, all, we've set all these boundaries as to what we think God is doing. And you know what he told us to do? He never told us to try to systematically figure out who he is. He said, love people. Love people. Show them there's something worth saying yes to. Live it through your life. Amen? It's a little quiet in here. I'm so sorry. So what's holding you back? What keeps you in the wilderness? What parts of Egypt are still attached to you? Your past, your sin, your shame? Another thing that I get out of this text is that every generation must choose. Every generation must choose. And so I'm speaking to the older generation, I'm speaking to the younger generation, you must choose. Whether your parents did a great job, whether they did a horrible job, whether they did a mediocre job, you still must choose. And you can't blame them for your choices. There is no entitlement in the kingdom. You don't just get in because your parents did so. And there's no automatic rejection of the kingdom. You don't not get in because your parents didn't do so. It's choice. It's you. Every generation must choose. Every generation must choose. Now, for me, my parents, my parents did an awesome job with my family. And they had eight kids. That's crazy. I don't even know what was going on back then. Was, there was no TV. What? Who said that? I'm bashful for you guys right now. I'm sorry. My parents did a great job raising their kids. But now I must choose. I must choose to do a great job raising my kids. I must choose to follow Jehovah. I must choose these things. And every single one of you in this room, I, don't, I mean, I don't care how old or young you are, you must choose. You must choose. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us, what? He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Let us lay aside every weight and sin. This is speaking of circumcision of heart. It's a cutting away of things. It's a removal of things. It's a separation of things. So just as the people of Israel right there on the other side of the Jordan River had to choose that day that they would be circumcised and set apart as holy unto the Lord, every single one of you, New Testament says it, lay aside every weight and sin. All of it. Lay it aside that what? That we may run this race set before us with endurance. With endurance. The great cloud of witnesses that's mentioned in Hebrews 11, I don't know how many, or in Hebrews 12, I don't know how many people know this, is actually pointing to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is what we call the faith chapter. So it's where we get people um, like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, etc. All these men, David, Solomon, Samson, all these, uh, Gideon, all these incredible, these people in scripture. And then he says in Hebrews chapter 12, because we are there's such a great cloud of witnesses. What is he saying? Because of those that have gone before us, let us make them proud also. Let us make them proud. I think a lot of us think that the great cloud of witnesses is the world or people in the world. It's not. That's not our concern. Our concern is who are those that have gone before us and what price have they paid? See, though the Israelites died in the wilderness, they were still circumcised. They still paid a price. I want you to look at the chair that you're sitting in right now. Look at it somehow. It's really funny to watch you guys look at your chair. I mean, how do you do that even? Are you aware? And I'm not speaking about financially. Financially too, yes. But somebody paid a price for that seat you're sitting in. Somebody paid a price. Somebody carved a path. Ron and Nina, the eldership of this church, they have put in time, effort, blood, sweat, tears, spirit, emotion, pain, anger, all of it. They have paid a price for us to be in this place. The question is this, in such a great cloud of witnesses, what are our lives showing them? Is it showing them, hey, we, we get it. This is worth it. This is worth it. This is a value. This means something to us too. 
Weights and sins. Let's lay aside weights and sins. The interesting thing about weights and sins is they are different things. He says weights and sins. He's not saying weights slash sins like they're the same thing. Weights and sins. Catch this. There are some things in your life that may be holding you back from your calling with God that may not be classified as sin. And we need to discern those things. Whether that's career, whether that's appetite of the flesh, or whatever those things may be. Whether, I mean, what are, what are those things for you? Where does your time go? Where does your effort go? Where does your strength go? Where does your love and your passion go? And are those things of God, or are they things that are holding you back from God? Weights and sins are very different things. So, congregation, I want you guys to begin to identify those things in your own lives. So they get circumcised. They get circumcised in verse 7. It says in verse 8, When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Everybody say healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. They remained until they were healed. They remained until they were healed. So here's what I want to say to us this morning in regards to that piece of the text. There is such thing as a healing process. But it's not forever. There is such thing as a healing process. I think that's common sense to most of us. I think most of us understand that part of life. I need to heal. I need to recover. Yes, but you also need to get back up at some point in time. If your healing has been going on for the past 20 years, you should probably be checking with Jesus about that. I'm serious, and I know that exists in this room. I know that exists in this room. Listen, time does not heal all things. That is Jesus' job. That is the job of Christ himself. So if we're still playing the victim game, that's an issue. Amen. Let's clap. Let's clap for the Lord. If we are still playing the victim game and talking about how much the circumcision hurt, how much that whole process of pruning and everything hurt, how difficult that was for us, you've already missed the point. You've already missed the point. So my question to you is this. You need to start asking yourself really actually this question. Is my healing process over? There's a difference between a healing process and vacations. Christians are not vacation people. We are Sabbath people. It's once a, it's once a week. Some of us have taken Sabbath to this other extreme where it's like, I'm done. I'm on Sabbath the rest of my life. So that's awesome. That was not the method, man. That was not the path of God. That was not the path of God. We need to get back to it. Somebody tell somebody next to you, get back to it. So there's a healing process, but it isn't forever. You were set apart to make a difference, to take the promised land. You were set apart for this. You were created for this. That, world, that, that word Gilgal, it says in the, in the text, it says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Everybody say Gilgal. It's just fun to say. Gilgal. The word actually means rolled away. The actual word itself means rolled away. And I think it's so cool the way that the Lord, the Spirit, obviously planned out all of Scripture to connect to so much. It says, today I've rolled away the reproach from you, the reproach of Egypt from you. What rolled away? What else rolled away in in Scripture? Take a guess. Boom, the stone. You guys are scholars. The stone rolled away away. And the stone rolling away was what? It was God saying the reproach of death, of shame, of sin, those three titans that we all think we're defeated by. He said, those things I have rolled away from you. It is done. It is finished. Now back to the original question of this whole story. Do you believe it? Because if you do, it'll show. And if you don't, that'll show also. Do you believe it? The stone has been rolled away. The reproach has been removed from you. And just like the people of Israel, you have to understand this. The reproach wasn't just the the, the concept of being stuck in Egypt. It was also the concept of being humiliated because they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. You think the Egyptians didn't see the Israelites stuck in the wilderness for 40 years and the mockery that must have happened because the people of God were suffering as such? And God is saying that reproach has been removed from you. That reproach has been removed from you. Christ is our entrance into the promised land. His blood consecrated us. His death gave us life. His resurrection gave us a future. Amen? Now, another interesting thing. 
God did all of this circumcision stuff on enemy territory. This all happened on enemy territory. Why didn't he do it on the safer side of the Jordan River? Like, why? What's the point? What's the purpose of that? Like, wouldn't you assume that before we're going to step into the enemy's territory, we need to make sure that everything's good? No. See, what God was saying is it's not your righteousness that's going to bring you to the promised land. It's me and my power alone that's going to bring you into the promised land. Some of us are still waiting for God to bring you into the promised land. Answer to your question, it already happened. Jesus was that. He already did it. The Jordan River has already been parted. We're not fighting for the Jordan River to be parted. We're not fighting for the Red Sea to split before us. Christ already did that. Now comes circumcision. Now comes a call to holiness. Now calls a commitment to say yes to something. Who's married in this room? Quick thing about marriage. At marriage, you say yes to a person. You're saying yes Till death do us part, you say yes to a person. Some of us, that word marriage is so broken and shattered, and I understand that, and the healing is there. Holy Spirit wants to heal our hearts in those areas as well. Here's the thing about commitment and covenant and saying yes to God. When we say yes to one thing, we need to understand we're automatically saying no to a thousand other things. Catch that. When you say yes to one thing, you say yes to one spouse, you know what you're saying to every other person that's, that's out there? Men, you know what you're saying to every other woman that is out there? You're saying no. When you say yes to your wife, you say no to every other woman out there. When you say yes to your husband, you say no to every other man out there. Holiness does not come from decisions of no, 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 no. Holiness comes from one decision that says yes. One decision that says yes. One decision that says God is worth it. Did you know the word worship, what we just did this morning, the word worship, what we, what, we, what we do here every single Sunday, that word derives from the understanding that God is worth it. That's the etymology of that word. That's the breakdown of that word, worth it. He is worthy of all praise. Here's what that also means. When we don't give him praise, that is to steal something that's already his. God already brought these people through the promised land. God has already brought us into the redemption of humanity, which is incredible. If our lives do not demonstrate that, God, you are worth it because you've done these things, we need, to under, we need to be very sober about this. We are stealing from the Lord God Almighty. I'm not talking about money. That's a part of it, but I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about your life, your time. The Israelites stole time from God. 40 years wasted in the wilderness. And you know whose name was being mocked? Not just the Israelites, the name of Jehovah was being mocked by the Egyptians. The name of Jehovah was being mocked by the Canaanites and the Amorites and the enemies of God. He was being mocked and he endured it. Why? Because his heart was still for love. He still said, these people are worth it to me. These people are still worth it to me. And same thing with us. When we steal things from God, God's heart is not just bam, anger, hatred, rage. It's no, you're still worth it to me. You're still worth it to me, and I'm still going to pull you through this. So, they take time to heal on enemy territory. Whenever you take enemy territory, the Lord will hold your enemy back in fear. Whenever you begin to take enemy territory in this world, the Lord will hold back the enemy in fear. Why? So you can heal. Here's the thing. Some of us have gone through so much spiritual warfare that now we're just taking a break. This is not a time for taking a break. It's a time for preparation. It is a time for holiness to be consecrated to the Lord God once again. And if we just wait for the next battle to come to get prepared, that's going to be an issue. That's going to be an issue. So what are the things that you just got through? I mean, man, it's funny. Ever since I started this sermon series, it's like one thing after another, one, one battle after another, one battle after another. It's been ridiculous. And I get like a few days in between those battles and as I read through the text, it's God saying, you know what? You need to start using those few days between the battles to get your heart ready for what's coming. God is after your growth. He's after your growth. Amen? Colossians 2.11, just speaking about circumcision, says this. In him, speaking of Christ, this is New Testament. In him also, you were circumcised with a, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful works of God, 
who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. Everybody say, I'm alive. Forgiving us all our trespasses. Everybody say, I'm forgiven. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's the same thing as what's going on here in Joshua. It's the same thing. The Lord loves to shame the enemy. And we need to know that. The Lord loves to shame the enemy. He loves it. He did it right here with Jesus Christ. He shamed the enemy, triumphing over them in Christ. But before the enemy can be shamed, we need to say yes. We need to say yes. We talk about it. The battle is the Lord's. Yeah, that's true, but you still have to pick up a sword. Amen? The last thing, and here's where the crux of this message comes. It says, in Joshua 5.10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening of the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. God is doing a new thing. God is doing a new thing. And I've heard prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word spoken over this church specifically, others as well. But this is my home. So I take that very seriously. This is our house. So I take those prophetic words very seriously. Here's the thing. God wants to do a new thing and he has said it for decades. He has said it for decades. My question is, have we gotten too busy collecting prophecies that we're not doing our part? Do you know there are churches that laminate prophecies? Like, oh, this prophetic word was spoken over our church. We're going to put that in the book. But what are we doing? What are we doing? Because God is calling us to do something. There is promise. There is provision. The question is this, is there a yes? Is there a group of people that can stand up and say yes? Is there a group of people that can stand and say yes? Amen. Now, what's beautiful is this. As the new comes in, a lot of people can have really broken perspectives of new and old. The new does not hate the old. We need to understand that. So for the younger generations, the new does not disdain the old. We need to understand one of the first things in that part of the text is they celebrated Passover. That was tradition. That was something that the Lord God gave to the people of Israel. They still honored the ways of the old. They didn't disdain it. Here's a danger in the church today. If the church gets to the point where, yes, I get it. Like, we're after new things. I'm after new things. I want to see God do more. But if we get to the point where doing more means letting go of the, of the covenants that God has put over our lives, that's an issue. So the young cannot disdain the old. At the same time, the old needs to embrace the new. There must be a merging of generations if this thing is going to happen. There must be a merging of generations where we say, you know what, God did this in this generation and that is something that is beautiful and valuable and we're gonna celebrate it. And then there also has to be an understanding that new wine needs new wineskins. It just does. It's just the way God moves. God says in Isaiah, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Is going forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The new must Embrace change to survive. It says the manna stopped. Everybody say manna stopped. Manna stopped. They would no longer be provided for in the same ways. The Church of America has survived this long on old ways. It has survived on manna, and that was beautiful. That was for a time and place. A new season is coming. I'm speaking prophetically now. A new season is coming into this generation, and generation is not 
determined in God by age. I want to under, you guys to understand this. There was a man in the text. His name is Caleb. Do you want to know what he says a couple chapters down? He says, I am as strong today as I was the day that Moses called me out then. I am as strong today. And there are some of you in this generation, the older generation, that God wants to usher you in to the new thing he is doing. This is not something he is reserving for youth or young adults or 30 and under. It's not that. God wants all to take part in what he is about to do across the earth. The question is, can you say yes? Will you say yes? The manna stopped. You know what this means in the new thing that God does. I think we think that the new thing that God does is going to be easy. It's not. These people haven't worked for food in 40 years. They haven't worked for food in 40 years. They've been provided for day after day after day after day. The land of Canaan was a land of promise, but it was also a land that brought war and work. It brought war and work. They didn't just step in and own everything. They had to do their part. War and work. They had to invade enemy territory. They now had to harvest their grains. This new thing that God is about to do, it's about to call Christians, Christianity, the sons and daughters of God, to step into a place that actually listens to the voice of God and moves with him where he moves and does as he asks us to do. And it doesn't just sit in a seat on a Sunday morning waiting for the next good thing to hear. It says, I have a part in this. I have a part in this. The generation before us, they have played their part so well. This upcoming generation, we need to play our part so well. Now, for my final, for my final thing. I want everybody to just seriously, seriously buckle up real quick. Okay? This morning, was we, while we were in worship... The Lord is moving so strongly in my heart and in this place. And something that he told me to, to share with us as a congregation outside of my notes is this generation, this younger generation, we're not ready yet. We're not ready. The time has not exactly come for transitions to take place and all that stuff to happen. We're not ready yet. But the generation that's before us, the yes that comes out of your souls is going to shape the yes that will come out of ours. What does that mean? It means this. If worship is happening, and I, I'm not talking about just music. I mean, I used to think, I mean, I've been a worship leader for years. So when, I mean, people worship, some people don't, some people raise their hands. I'm not talking about that. But there's an obvious atmosphere when the spirit of a human being is connecting with the spirit of God. Whether your body's moving or not, it's an obvious spiritual atmosphere. And it's obvious when it's not happening. For years, I've been a, I've been a worship leader. And so for years, it was like this really personal thing. Like, oh, our music just sucks. Like, they hate all of everything that we do. Like, like maybe it was the lights. Maybe it was the sound. Maybe it was the speakers. And the Lord said, no, it's hearts. It's hearts. And all those things, I get that. I get all that stuff, all the details. It's all important. But it's not important enough to say no to God when it comes to worship. And what broke my heart this morning is there are some that worship, and it's beautiful. But I see the generation of students that I've spent years building up, watching that older generation that refuses to enter into the presence of God for whatever reason. For whatever reason whether it's complaints, apathy, exhaustion, whatever it may be, I don't know. And I can't judge that for you. Here's the issue. The future of the church is still in your hands. It is still in the hands of our leadership, of our elders, of, of the, the adults that are in this congregation. It is still in your hands. And if you do not take the baton that God has trusted you with, how are we going to take the next leg of the race? If you don't run your part, you know what that means? We're going to have to run twice as hard. And I'm willing to do it, man. I'm willing to run three times as hard if that's what God wants. I've said yes. 
but I want this church to say yes and really say yes. And I know there's hunger here because last week when Pastor Brian was speaking, almost every single person in this church was up here for blessing. There is hunger, but you know what also exists is fear. There's a fear of man. There's a fear of man in this place that needs to die. And that's not our job. That's not our job. This younger generation, that is not our job. The sword is still in your hands, older generation. It is still in your hands. Be as Caleb was. Caleb and Joshua led the next generation. And they were of the older generation. They had the wilderness experience. It is still in your hands. We need a church. And, I'm not, and I am speaking specifically of this church, but across the world. We need a church of the older generation that says, I will also play my part. You know what Paul tells Timothy when he's building the church? He says, be sure that the older women are training the younger women. Be sure that the older men are training the younger men. That doesn't happen in this place. And that's an issue, and we need to stop waiting for somebody to create some sort of ministry that merges the two generations. You are ministry. Your life is ministry. We should not have to start other nights and stuff like that for this thing to happen. Discipleship is part of the commission. Discipleship's part of the commission. So, older generation, here's your part. I know this morning was heavy. I was not planning on it being that way. But when the Lord says do something, you do something. Because otherwise, you spend 40 years in the wilderness. And I refuse to stay in the wilderness. I refuse. I will enter into the promised land. And I want a people along with us in this church that says, I will enter into the promised land. And I won't just sit there and eat the fruit. I will go into war and I will work. I will do what God has called me to do. You need to understand something. The world is falling apart. You want to know what the hope of the world is? It's Jesus. Do you want to know where Jesus dwells? The church. If the church does not move, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Final little asterisk at the end of this message. Don't you guys love that? That's a pastor's right, by the way. We can lie only when we're talking about how much longer we're going to talk about in our sermons. We all do it. I'm just saying. The method of God is not protest. It is peace. It is love. And it is showing people there's a better way. So if, I mean, Zazobra just happened this past Thursday, and there were people at Zazobra holding up judgment signs. We will be held accountable for every word we speak, whether it's out of our mouth or on a sign. God's heart is not condemnation for the world. If it was, he would have done it already. God's heart is for hope and redemption in this world. Our approach is, the manna, the old ways of doing things needs to stop. And we need to embrace what God is doing today, here, now. We're in the promised land. I want you to know that. You're in the promised land. Do you believe it?